read our scripture for today. If you have your Bible, it's time to pull out your swords and turn to the book of Titus, chapter 3, which is towards the back of the New Testament. And we'll be reading together, or I'll be reading, you'll be following along, Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 3. And the scripture will be projected behind me in case you don't have your Bible in front of you. So, the Word of God says, in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is, is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those things are excellent and profitable for people. That's God's word for today. One in Spain and in, one in Italy. Are they already back? Four daughters. So be praying for them. And then pray for little Miss Anna Torres. She's going in tomorrow for surgery. She's having her tonsils and her adenoids removed. And um, we know that any time we go in for surgery, there's always that concern that things are done well. And so we want to be praying for, for Anna, that she is at peace and rest as she goes in, and for quick recovery for her. Received word this morning also that Pastor Nieves, from over here at the United Methodist Church on Mozart, was on a missions trip in Guatemala and was um, in a car accident, and he is now in a coma. And they're needing to raise $30,000 to get him back here for medical care. But be praying for, for him and for the church um, as they are without their pastor during this time period. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we want to lift up Darvis, a bruised family. Lord, we think back and remember many wonderful things about him. We thank you, Lord, for him and for his hard work. We pray, Father, that in his death, Father, that you might comfort his four children. And, Lord, that each of the daughters might have a strong sense of your presence and your love. We pray, Father, that, that you would comfort them, Lord, that you would encourage them. And, Father, for the extended family, Lord, that you'd be with each of them. Our Father, we lift up little Anna Torres as she goes in tomorrow, Lord, for surgery to remove her tonsils and adenoids. We ask, Father, that things would go well. Father, there'd be no complications. And Father, we lift up Pastor Nieves from the United Methodist Church here on, on Mozart. Lord, that you be with the family. Oh, Father, we ask that that you would go before and open the doors, Lord, for them to get him back here. And, Father, that the doctors might have wisdom and discernment as they care for him. And, oh, Father, as we look at the second 
week, Lord, in a series on radical. Father, we so much need you and your Holy Spirit, Father, to work. Father, may the words that I speak be yours. Father, may our hearts be open to you and to your word. Father, may we not make excuses. May we not in any way do anything but be obedient to you, Lord, to your Holy Spirit, to your word as you lead us and guide us. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, as Ugo mentioned, we kicked off our radical series. Many of you were absent because of the cold, cold, cold weather and the snow. And so I want to give you a quick summary, uh, update uh, on that as we begin uh, this morning. Christianity in, in America has been redefined as the American dream has seeped into our understanding of God's Word. And in his book, Radical David Platt describes American Christianity and its view of Jesus in this way. He's a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call on us to give up everything we have. He's a Jesus who would not expect us to forsake all our closest relationships. He'd be fine with just nominal devotion. He doesn't want to infringe on our comforts. After all, he loves us just the way we are. He's a Jesus who brings us prosperity. We make excuses at different times to avoid being obedient to God. Initially, many people followed Jesus Christ as he traveled throughout the area. Some eventually became real believers as they put their faith and trust in Christ. Others, however, turned from him as they realized his radical demands on them. Last week, we looked at three individuals as they interacted with Jesus Christ. Each initially seemed sincere, but in his interaction with them, as he began to respond to them, they saw his radical demands and turned away, made excuses. But in this passage last week, we saw three things in our lives that can hold us back from committing ourselves to the Lord and to following him. And the first one is our desire for personal comfort. If we want to follow Jesus Christ, we must be willing to give up everything, even the comforts of home. There will be conflict. There will be rejection. There will be tough times. But it's worth it. Second thing that can hold us back is desire for materialism or personal riches. And you may say, well, Pastor Ralph, I don't want to be rich. I just want what everybody else has. If we're honest with ourselves, materialism can hold us back, can hinder us. Sometimes it's not bad things or sinful things that keep us from God. It can be good things that we need to release to the Lord. 
And the third thing we saw last week that can hinder us from following Christ are personal relationships. Jesus is very clear that even the closest relationships, the family, come second to following him. We saw last week the urgency of reaching people with the gospel. We have the truth. We have the word of life. It's the answer to our problems. Life is short. And there's so little time. Are you and I willing to follow Christ at any cost? Even if it means rejection? The question that I ended with last week, and I'll ask you now, is what keeps you, what keeps you and me from following Christ? Is it personal comfort? Is it materialism? Is it family? Well, as we saw last week, putting everything on the table is a necessity in following Christ. I think I was sometimes that as we talk about the gospel here in America, there's confusion. There's confusion about what is the gospel. I remember as a non-believer having this idea that, that my good deeds had to outweigh my bad deeds. I can't begin to tell you how many times I prayed how many different churches I went to, vacation Bible school, Sunday school, church services, youth services. Yet I never understood the gospel. I knew that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. I knew that he paid for my sins, but no one ever really made it clear to me. My family were non believers and we had our own idea about things and I guess if you could summarize what we felt it was Jesus trusting Jesus plus works plus works one could never know whether they were saved I remember in my frustration I would pray a prayer and then I would sin and my twin brother would look at me and say see Ralph you're a hypocrite you're not saved. See, I didn't understand. I didn't understand the gospel. And so today, I want us, as we look at our passage, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, I want us to be looking at the gospel. And as we think about it, I want to think about two different extremes, two different ideas. And let's call one guy John. John prayed to receive Christ. He professed faith in Christ 10 years ago. He'll come to church consistently for a while, and then he'll stop. Maybe sometimes even go to a small group. John believes that works have nothing to do with salvation. He's quick to say that salvation is by grace alone. He's right there. According to him, one's actions have nothing to do with one's salvation. The sad thing is that that's very evident in his life. You see, John goes to church. He professes faith in Jesus Christ. 
But when one can tell through his character, through his treatment of other people, through his concern for the loss or lack of it, that even though he boldly confesses faith in Jesus Christ, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. Then there's Joanne. Joanne was raised in the church. She must have been baptized four times. She goes to every Bible study she can go to. She goes online listening to sermons. She so longed to please God. She works very, very hard to please God. And yet there's that lack of peace. Even though she works so hard, she feels like she's not pleasing God. She never feels like she's done enough. She has no assurance of salvation. And trying to live out the gospel has worn Joanne out. Both John and Joanne are confused. John thinks that works have nothing to do with salvation, and Joanne thinks that everything that works or everything to do with salvation, and both are wrong. Until they get a clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're both missing out. David Platt, and, and, who is the author of Radical but in a different um, source, says that we should embrace a gospel that both saves us from work. In other words, we don't have to work for it. But he saves us also to work. He saves us to work. Today, I want us to look at our life in Christ Jesus. Again, there's that repentance up front. There's that dying to ourselves, dying to our desires for comfort and for pleasure and for material things and for our families. We must be willing to die to the idea that works save us. Scripture is so very clear that we are saved by grace. Through faith, not of works. Scripture is also very clear, however, that faith, faith always produces fruit, good works. As we look at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, we'll see that we need to remember Remember, we remember our former lies. If we're, if we're Christians, we need to look back and remember our lies before Christ. Second, we need to look back and remember our salvation. Third, we need to look back and remember our new identity. And then fourth, we need to remember our mission, our purpose in life. First, we need to remember our former life. Our life, if we're in Christ, before Christ. Titus 3, 3 and 4 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and he saved us. Instead of doing good works 
prior to Christ were predisposed to doing evil works. This doesn't mean that we're as evil as we could be. I think it was Pastor Tim Keller that says that not many of us are Attila the Hun or Adolf Hitler, but we have that potential to be them. That verse says we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasure. We see as we look back, our fallen nature, foolish, stubborn refusal to acknowledge God, disobedient, rebellious, is choosing to live in opposition to God and to his word, deceived, means full of error, wrong understanding, purely led astray. We know from God's word that we're led astray in different ways, but the major one is Satan. John 8, 44 says that you belong, this is non-believers, you belong to your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. There is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and father of lies. Satan deceives us. Of course, we believe other lies also before Christ. Second Timothy 3.13 talks about that the pastor there is, is encouraged to deal with the false teachers that they themselves are deceiving and being deceived. So we're seeing this passage first, our fallen nature, our fallen character. Then in verse 3, we see that we're slaves, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Lust. Romans 3, 10 through 18 talks about the fact that there's no one righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. Their throat is an open grave. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God. You see, the unsaved have neither a desire or ability to do anything but sin. In verses 3 and 4, we see not only were we enslaved to our passions and our lust, but we were filled with contempt. We see that, that it says that we're passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Pretty strong, isn't it? We see our contempt, though. Malice is evil, vicious character. Envy is that displeasure at the happiness of others. We're never satisfied with what we have, with our positions, with our possessions, compared to someone else. And then we're hated by others and hating one another. We despise anyone who stands in our way or gives us displeasure. Not a very pretty picture of someone before Christ. It's a way of life that deserves the wrath of God. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. It's this life that we're in Christ, if we have trusted in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, if we're truly followers of Jesus Christ, it's this life that we have been rescued from. And therefore, we should look back, we should remember those days of previous life, like with thanksgiving and with humility. We should desire that we reach others who are still lost. We make ourselves better prepared to be used by God when we remember where we came from. When we remember where we came from. If you think back, some of you can't because you weren't around then maybe, but you go back to 2001 to 9-11 when our uh, World Trade Center was, was bombed, or rather bombed by planes. Do you remember the people rushing out of the buildings, covered with soot and with dust. I read story after story how many of them felt guilt that they had made it and others had not. Some of them were able to go back in and rescue others. But many suffer emotionally, probably even to this day because they lived and others did not. In the same way, those of us who are in Christ have no reason to feel superior to those who are outside of Christ, who have never put their faith in Christ. And we should be rushing back in, so to speak, just as some of those survivors did. We need to remember our former lives. Never forget where you came from. Never forget the hopelessness that you felt, the emptiness that you experienced without Christ in your life. Remember. Remember your former life. Secondly, we need to remember our salvation. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7 we read, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Remember, remember your salvation. Every aspect of our salvation is from God and God alone. He sent us a Savior, as it says there. Christ Jesus came and died on the cross for us and arose that we might live for him. It's totally the work of Christ. It's his work alone that our salvation is based on. 
In our lives, if we're in Christ, our lives are united with Christ. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality through the gospel. So first, it's all about Christ. Secondly, it's by the mercy of God, not our good deeds, not our righteousness. He saved us not because of works, but according to his own mercy. And mercy, as we all know, is not giving us what we deserve. We deserve wrath. But God gives us life in Christ if we trust him. We were hard, we were resistant to the love of God. I remember so very well. We're spiritually dead. Again, Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. We owe our salvation, if we're in Christ, to the mercy and to the grace of our Lord and nothing else. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from long ago. That was his plan from long ago. Think about it. Christ didn't just all of a sudden start caring about you, but you go back, he turns you past. I think of Ephesians 1. How it says that before the foundation of the world, that he chose us, he called us to be his children. It was by the grace of God that we're saved is a third point here. Grace has given us what we don't deserve, eternal life. It's because of God's goodness, his, his loving kindness, his love for us. We don't deserve to be reborn. Go back and review that list I just mentioned. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions, down the line. We're saved. When we're saved, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. It is a gift for God so that no one may boast. I think as we look around today and see all the various false ideas about salvation, it's a reflection of our pride. The popular ideals of, of salvation revolve around works, really. It's keeping the law or doing more good deeds than bad ones or living up to some moral standard. But salvation is through grace, by faith. Fourth is, it's the Holy Spirit that changes us when we come to Christ. Is his work of regeneration and renewal. We see in verses 5 and 6 that he saved us not again because of our works, but his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal are, they're essentially the same terms, they're synonyms almost. They mean roughly the same thing. Regeneration is that cleansing and renewing. It's sometimes um, translated new birth. That's where we get being born again. The NIV translates regeneration as rebirth. It's a new creation. And then renewal means making something new. 
This is what the Spirit of God does when we come to Christ in faith. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. There's nothing good in us, in our flesh. He cleanses us. He makes us into a new creation. So now we are clean and we are new. And that's what it means to be born again, to be regenerated. I love 1 Corinthians 6 because uh, it shows you again God's grace. It says, do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. We could go on with some more things, more sins. Said, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It's Christ who died on the cross, who rose again, who paid for our sins. And it's the Holy Spirit who renews, regenerates, who cleanses us and makes us into a new creation and takes up residence in us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. I remember so very clearly when I came to Christ, this was a verse that I learned, put on a plaque, because I was all those things that we looked at earlier. And God said, I was a new creation, a new creation. Let me ask you this morning, you may be coming to church, you may have come to church, you may have grown up in the church, but are you a new creation? Have you left everything on the table? Have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and that alone for salvation? I remember coming to Christ some 30-something years ago out of drugs and alcohol, a life that I'm very ashamed of, I remember when I came to Christ, I remember the sky was so much more blue. I remember the despair in my life was replaced with hope. The disaster of my life, God changed and he gave me hope and he changed me. And for the first time, I had a tremendous Desire to know God and to know His Word. I had new desires within, new longings. I longed to know the Lord. I longed to study His Word. You see, I'd hit rock bottom. 
I had nowhere else to go. We don't have to hit rock bottom. Ephesians, not Ephesians, Ezekiel 36, 25 reminds me of my salvation and of yours, if you have trusted Christ. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Remember. Remember your former life. Remember where you came from. Remember your salvation. And third, remember what you have become. Remember what you have become. Verse 7 says, so that being justified, and this is, in this case, another word for salvation, being justified by the grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become heirs. We're children no longer. Are we aliens and strangers? First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, I am writing to God's chosen people. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. And his spirit has made you holy. The result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, I want to read one more time. He chose us before the creation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. Do we grasp who we are in Christ? We're his sons and daughters. We're his heirs. How will you and I use our positions and all the resources that we have? You see, God didn't save us just to save us from hell. He's a purpose for our lives. God has given us so many resources in Christ to use for his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Kind of knocks down our excuses, doesn't it? Let me read that to you one more time. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but we have no excuse, do we? I remember when Pastor Wayne left and I talked to the elders and I told them, I'll move aside so a new pastor, senior pastor can come along. And the elders said, Ralph, have you ever thought about being senior pastor? 
And I said, no. Quickly. But then as we talked, as God worked in my heart and my life, I began to say, okay. You must realize, and those of you who've been around a long time know, I was on staff for 20 years. I spoke twice. I preached twice. I did not want to be up here initially. But as men and women came to me and said, Ralph, you're, you've been my shepherd. You've been my, my pastor. We, 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 we love you and we respect you. And that's God's grace. So I had to think. Not an easy thing for some of us sometimes to get up. There's some who love it. I'm learning to love it. I'm learning to love it. I love to now. But see, I had to follow those first steps. I had to be obedient to the Lord. And as we trust Him, He enables us to do all that He's called us to do. That passage, guys, it's got us. God is able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's grace. It's God's grace in us as we trust him as we move beyond the limited ideas that we have of who we are, this American dream that we have, the idea is that we can do this and we can do this through our creativity and our genius minds. But God says, it's not you. He says, I will give you strength. I will give you the ability What's he calling you to do? Trust him. We need to remember our lives before Christ. We need to remember our salvation. We need to remember who we are in Christ. And finally, we need to remember our mission, our purpose. Why did God save us? Why did he save us? Verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. (laughs) Paul is saying to Titus, the pastor, He says, I want you to insist, to insist on these things for those who have believed in God, that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. We've grown up in a church that, not just good news, but within evangelical Christianity, 
Once saved, always saved. And there's truth to that. But if we're saved, God changes our hearts and our lives. We no longer live the way we lived before. He changes us. Paul stresses the necessity that our lives reflect God, his love, his purity. Our lives, and get this now, our lives are evidence of our salvation. Though good works never, ever save us, I'll make that very clear, we are not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But though they're not a part of our salvation, they are indispensable evidence of our salvation. James 2.18, I love the New Living Translation, says, Now someone may argue, some people have faith. Others have good works. But I say, how can you, sh- how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show my faith by my good deeds. Titus 3.14 says, We must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Our lives are evidence of our faith, of our salvation. Secondly, our lives are an expression of our salvation. Titus 2.14 says, He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his own very people, totally committed to doing good works, 1 Timothy 6, 18, Paul addresses the rich. He says, use their money to do good. And he says, be rich in good deeds. In 1 Timothy, as he, in chapter 2, as he verses, uh, addresses women, he says, if you claim to love Jesus Christ, if you claim to love God, he says, women, make yourselves attractive by doing good deeds. In 1 Timothy 5, 10, there's this widow's list of people, women whose husbands had died, and they set up a standard for who could receive it. They said, first, you must be at least 60. You must have been faithful to your husband, must be well-respected due to the good that she has done. She must have raised her children well, kind to strangers, served believers humbly, helped those in trouble and always been ready to do good. That's a long list. That requires the Spirit of God living in us. The very purpose of Christ's death was to purify himself of people who would be enthusiastic about doing good works, to bring glory to him. The third thing is we see our mission. Our lives will benefit others. Verse 8 says, these things are excellent and profitable for other people, for those who are outside the faith. 
It's important that non-believers be attracted to Christians, to Christ in us. We've all seen this group from Missouri, I think it is, that they go and they, they boycott and stand against and march against soldiers or whatever. They hate homosexuals. As they always have these signs, God hates gays and this and that. And, and, and what we see, we don't see the love of Christ in them. We see their hate. And God calls us to exemplify Christ. Titus 2.12 says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should, be, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. I look back in my life. I've mentioned before Central Baptist Church back in Alabama. There were people I looked at from a distance. They were different. Lois Morgan lived up next door to us. She was a godly lady. They didn't have a whole lot, but she was a godly woman. She prayed for us, I found out later on, all our lives. She picked us up to go to vacation Bible school every year. She loved the Lord. Then there was Aunt Jane Hamilton. She was the best teacher I've ever seen, I believe. She had, back those days, the flannel board, and she'd put those pictures. She must have led so many people to Jesus Christ. She was such a genuine, loving, sweet, kind southern lady. And there was Brother Young. And when, I, when my life was such a disaster, I knew where to go because he lived a life in which Christ was so evident. Then there was in college, the university where I went so far away from the Lord, there was Dean Homer, the vice president. We called him Dean Homer. He was always there just pointing me toward Christ. Well, Ralph, you know that's wrong. Well, Ralph, you know what God would call you to do. And then there was my buddy, my friend, Roger McConnell. He was a Christian, and he joined Delta Chi fraternity just so he could reach, he said, me. It was a fraternity that was filled with drugs and alcohol. He would follow me to the bar. He would do all kinds of things. He would beg me to go to church with him. See, God placed in my life and in your lives People, people where Christ's love shine through. Are you and I being that light? Do people see Christ? Are they drawn to the Lord? Now we fail. We all sin. We miss the boat in so many ways. But there's God's grace. As I think of this whole process, I'm reminded in Matthew 19, 28, the same word used for renewal of us is used for renewal of the world. Matthew 19, 28, and it says, Jesus said to them, 
Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, you will have followed me. You who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers and sisters or father and mother or wife or children or fills for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who were first will be last. And many who were last will be first. We live in this present world. And those of us who are in Christ, we've been renewed. But it's the first step. Because down the line, God says he's going to renew the world. This world is temporary, just as our lives are temporary. We know that God will renew creation. And he'll reign. We'll reign with him. You must remember, in the midst of life with its ups and downs, this life is temporary. It's important to remember, to remember. I love the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Over and over and over, it talks about, don't forget, or remember. He tells Israel, don't forget, I didn't choose you, Israel, because of your size. Or, don't forget, Israel, it's not because of your righteousness, because you had none. Or, don't forget, I blessed you with all these things in a new, new land, promised land, because of my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need to remember. We need to remember. We, too, were rescued from slavery, just as Israel was rescued from slavery. We were enslaved to our lust and our passions. We must die to the idea that works can save us. They cannot. Scripture is so very clear that we're saved by grace through faith alone. But Scripture is also very clear that faith always produces fruit. Good works. It's the Spirit of God within us that enables us to serve him. Let's pray. My Father, we wonder